Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Emily St. John Mandel's Sea of Tranquility is a book of large scope, spanning more than four centuries, and even larger ideas. In fewer than 300 pages, we take in pandemics, time travel, and colonialism of both lunar and early 20th century varieties. And if that sounds somewhat dizzying, I want to be clear that while it can be at times, indeed the dizziness is part of the fun, what keeps our feet on solid earth is Emily St. John Mandel's elegant, light-touch prose, her almost preternatural gift for spinning a story, and, perhaps above all else, and as with all of her novels, the convincing, compassionately told human stories at its core. I'm absolutely delighted to say that Emily St. John Mandel joins us today. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think where I'd like to begin is with this idea of pandemic books. Now, um, we are getting uh, quite a, I guess, I mean, spate might not be quite the right word, but a lot of writers are putting out books which are in some way inspired or written during the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a kind of a unique position in that in one of your previous books, Station Eleven, you were already writing essentially about a uh, a post pandemic world. <laughs> and so I'm curious. I'm curious to know what was it about this experience of the COVID nineteen pandemic, assuming it was this experience that inspired the book, that made you want to to revisit pandemics as an idea. Um, if we're to be honest here, I think we were all a little deranged in 2020, and mm-hmm. I feel I confirm. like confirm right uh, everywhere. You know, both sides of the Atlantic and. I had a really interesting conversation uh, over email, probably about a year ago, where I was emailing with this novelist, um, an acquaintance of mine, who's a, um, yeah, she's a literary novelist. And, you know, every now and again, we'll just have a brief little email correspondence and then not speak for six months. And so we were talking about our projects and I said, oh, well, I'm working on a time travel novel. And she said, that's so interesting. I'm working on a time travel novel too. And I realized my friend Emma Straub was also working on a time travel novel, in no way her usual genre, by the way. Yeah. And this acquaintance of mine I was emailing with said, you know, I know two or three other literary novelists working on time travel novels. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what we came to in that email exchange was that I think literary novelists who've kind of been hovering on the edge of sci-fi we're just mm. kind of pushed right off the deep end uh, by mm. the strangeness and awfulness of this experience that we've all been through. I think that might have been partly the case for me. Um, it, partly for me also, it was the strangeness of being the author of Station Eleven during an actual mm. pandemic, which came up so quickly. You know, I want to sure. say within a week of lockdown, I was getting invitations to write op-eds about being uh-huh. the author of Station Eleven during an actual pandemic. And mm. I said no to all of those invitations because 
it felt inappropriately promotional, you know, mm-hmm. as if I were using this real life human tragedy to move units of Station Eleven. But at the same time, it was weird. And I did want to yeah. write about it. And in the lead up to the pandemic, probably about two or three months before it hit, I had started working on these fragments of autofiction, mm-hmm. which for any listeners who aren't familiar, that's just shorthand for autobiographical fiction. And I think of that as fiction that's just slightly more obviously based on the life of the writer than the rest uh-huh. of the fiction we write, you know, because we do, of course, bring our own experiences into, into all of our of work. Course. But yeah, you know, I'd started working on these fragments about the experience of the Epic Book Tour, which mm. experienced with Station Eleven. And and then the pandemic hit, and there was the pretty absolute horror of New York City in March 2020. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think to the point that my novelist acquaintance made, um, I think I was just pushed right over the edge. And I thought, well, maybe I could use those fragments of autofiction in kind of a science fictional way. Like, could I look mm. at this through the lens of speculative fiction and turn it into a story about being an author on tour in the year 2300? Yes. There was absolutely an element of escapism to the book. And I think the time uh, travel was probably part of that, not just for me, but I'm going to go on a limb and say probably for everybody who wrote time mm-hmm. travel novels during 2020, <laughs> where it was just like, get us out of 2020, which I think the mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely felt that. <laughs> Um, a couple of things. Firstly, just as a quick aside, it's interesting you mentioned New York because just last week um, I was interviewing uh, Sandra Newman, whose new book, mm-hmm. The Men, has just come out. And she talked about New York City in the early days of the pandemic as being one of the sort of the strangeness of that experience as being one of the sort of the driving factors. That's uh, for interesting. Her as that well. makes perfect sense to me. You know, the thing with New York, you know, as with Paris and a lot of other places, is there's such compression. Which Mm -hmm. is to say, you know, it's just a very high concentration of people in a small space, which in practical terms during a pandemic means that most people live fairly close to a hospital. Of course. Uh, I live about a mile from a hospital in Brooklyn. So the soundscape, I think, was what drove Mm. a lot of us kind of to the brink. Um, Constant sirens, day and night, Mm. never just one ambulance siren, two or three ambulances approaching from different directions. and. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, we throw the word maddening around in kind of a casual mm. way, but that word actually means something. You know, that's like yeah. there was yeah. a maddening quality to, uh, yeah, to, to that to that sound and hearing it all the time. Um, concerning the the sort of the approach of the pandemic, that's one of the things I thought was particularly powerful about Sea of Tranquility was the way that you captured. Obviously, it's a different pandemic; mm-hmm. it's a future pandemic, but that feeling of the the way the pandemic kind of crept up on us yeah. and then took hold so so suddenly. I mean, you write at the moment that pandemics don't approach like wars with the distant thud of artillery growing louder every day and flashes of bombs on the horizon. They arrive in retrospect, essentially, and it's disorienting. And that really resonated um, with me. But I'm curious to know, as I say, having written a pandemic novel, and again, a pandemic novel which is sort of in which the pandemic is in many ways much more catastrophic than mm-hmm. the one we've just lived through have you felt your ideas about what a pandemic is constituted of and how people react to it altered by having lived through one definitely yeah and you know you just touched upon the main difference or the main thing that i didn't quite that i didn't quite realize when i was writing mm-hmm. station 11 was i think i had always thought 
for all my research into pandemics that I did for that book, I'd always thought of pandemics as kind of a binary situation, Mm -hmm. as in you're either in or you're out. You know, somebody Mm -hmm. flips the pandemic on switch and the pandemic's on. Yeah. And so I was fascinated and I remain fascinated by that period right at the very beginning, which in New York City was February 2020. Probably up until about March 11th or so was when things really became clear. But that whole period, the entire month of February, there was this kind of collective denial and mass mm-hmm. failure of imagination that that continues to fascinate me. Because I mean, mm-hmm. like we're smart people. Like we, you know, we can follow the news. Uh-huh. The line that occurs over and over again in Sea of Tranquility is we knew it was coming, <laughs> you know, which mm-hmm. um, which was the situation. We were watching this terrible new viral outbreak spreading mm-hmm. very rapidly out of China and Italy and then elsewhere. New York City has three international airports. So obviously it was pouring in by the hour. Mm. And what I remember of that period is this kind of defense mechanism where we were incredibly blasé about it. You know, mm. we were all being kind of like jaded New Yorkers. We we're like, well, obviously that virus is already here. I was like, yeah, obviously. And then we would shake hands with strangers, get into crowded subway trains, drop our kids off at school, go to choir mm. practice and unventilated basements, you know, whatever the deranged <laughs> things were that one is absolutely not supposed to do with a pandemic approaching. Mm. So we knew what was coming, but we didn't believe it. And yeah. that is kind of a fascinating in-between state that I tried mm. to capture in this book. And I think it also it feeds into that thing, which has become a bit of a sort of a cliche slogan of of the British supposedly wartime spirit of kind of keep calm and carry mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Um, in which in which case, you know, in the case of war, perhaps carrying on with your everyday life is a you know a sign of resistance and a and a sign of you know in some way sort of facing up to to the problem. But with a pandemic, suddenly we discover that actually a pandemic, as you write, is not like a war. In no, fact, it's sort it's of not. the way in which you respond to it needs to be by necessity completely completely different absolutely and you know we have seen so much denialism and magical Mm -hmm. thinking you know i can only really speak for the american experience which has been pretty extreme in that regard Mm -hmm. but i know that it exists in other places it's yeah you know the people who are keeping calm and carrying on by pretending that it's 2019 and Mm -hmm. never ever wearing a mask um It's hard not to feel a degree of contempt. And I know that's a brutal thing to say, but that is a dynamic, you know, definitely Mm -hmm. where I live. Um, On the other hand, keeping calm and carrying on and the sense of adapting to new conditions on the ground and taking Mm -hmm. reasonable measures like that, that to me feels stronger. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what we've tried to do. You know, I've I've been traveling a lot because I live in New York City. Um, In theory, I'm in Los Angeles all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Hypothetically, I have a home in New York, uh, but I'm working on a Los Angeles-based TV project. Mm -hmm. So I've been flying a lot, um, you know, very long flights. And that's fine in an N95 mask. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the other day when I was flying from New York to Los Angeles, there were two people in my cabin with very bad coughs. <laughs> Just, yeah. You know, so like unmasked, oh, yeah. of course. Uh, so uh-huh. that version of keeping calm and carrying on is fairly inadmirable to me. But, yeah. That um, that that idea of magical thinking that you that you mention uh, puts me in mind of something else you write about um, concerning illness, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, and I, I never really found it quite articulated in this way before, and it fascinated me about the fact that you write illness still carries a terrible mystery for us. And 
that seems very, very true. And again, thinking back to the the early months of the pandemic, there is this kind of there was this kind of strange, almost kind of dislocation between what we assume science can do and indeed what mm-hmm. science was doing. I mean, developing a vaccine in whatever, like nine months was an extraordinary scientific advance. And yet there are so many things that are unpredictable and unknown yes. about it. Who, who suffers, why they suffer, who gets long COVID, who mm-hmm. doesn't. And that sort of, do you think that is what feeds into this kind of tendency for magical thinking, this idea of the mystery of illness? I think so. I think that's a big part of it because, you know, again, I'll return to that word maddening, which is real here Mm. too. The difficulty of making a reasonable risk assessment with COVID-19 is that either you'll get it and it will feel like having a cold for three days or you'll Mm. get it and you'll die or you'll get Mm. it and it won't seem that bad, but you'll have long COVID and be debilitated for months or a year or longer. How do you, how do you make decisions in that environment? Mm -hmm. You know, it's insane. So I think that is part of it, but that's also something that I've been thinking about for a long time around illness because before the pandemic, I did a lot of lectures on the subject of station 11 Mm. And I refined that lecture over a period of years and then gave it to Olive, my character in Sea of Tranquility. Mm. Yes. So all of her point, all of her talking points will seem very familiar to people mm. who saw me out on the road you know, between about <laughs> 2015 and, uh, well, March 2020. Um, but yeah, you know, when I started talking about pandemics and about illness more generally and about mm. that terrible mystery that illness carries, which even pre-pandemic, that thing where you don't know who will get cancer and who won't. Mm. And sometimes it seems terribly random, like that kind of thing. I would always see, you know, I would be watching my audience and Mm. I feel like I would just see this kind of vulnerability on some of the faces, Mm. you know, and these are people who have been thinking about that for various reasons. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that randomness, I think is what makes illness so terrifying in a Mm. way that perhaps sometimes other calamities aren't where, yeah, you know, often, not always, but often it's possible to flee in advance of, say, a natural mm-hmm. disaster or mm-hmm. many accidents can be averted. You know, yeah. don't climb up that precariously balanced ladder, like that, that kind of uh-huh. thing. <laughs> but, but illness just strikes or it doesn't. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah, I think it touches upon this deep human terror of chaos. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Olive. Um, as I, I normally have kind of as one of my principles not to... Uh, ask authors. So this character was based on your life experience. But she but totally you was. <laughs> told us that it was. And, and you know, I, there's a there's an author. She's on a never ending book mm-hmm. tour, having written a post apocalyptic novel. Mm-hmm. It's kind of even without your admission there, it's hard for us as readers not to. Oh, and <laughs> you should. Yeah, you yeah. onto Olive. Um, so then I'm curious about the decision then to. Uh, not because because there are parts of this book that take place in 2020, for mm-hmm. example. But you decide to push Olive a good two, three hundred years right. into into the future. Um, I mean, one thing that I found reassuring from a Shakespeare and Company perspective is that you believe there will still be book tours. Yes, and, that, uh, that and is the utopian vision of the future, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but what, what 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 fueled that decision to to sort of essentially base it on your life, but to transpose it a few centuries um, further down the line? I don't know if it was partly a defense mechanism to make it less my life, which. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a weird thing with autofiction where on the one hand, every interaction she has on the road is completely autobiographical. So mm-hmm. people really said those things to me. Um, on the other hand, I left out so much of my life that mm-hmm. 
I don't really feel that vulnerable in talking about all of you know like she's not uh-huh. even though even though that was my tour essentially um mm-hmm. she's not more me than say Miranda in Station Eleven was or Vincent right. in the Glass Hotel uh-huh. I think I just thought it was more interesting. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I love autofiction that's set in the present day. I very much admire Rachel Cusk's work, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but just this thought of, would it be cool to take this form and set it in a moon colony in the year 2300? Like, that mm-hmm. sounds fun. <laughs> so, yeah. And the answer from readers is, yeah, it would be very cool to do. <laughs> it was, and it was fun to write, I have to say. The first stop on the book tour was New York City where Olive did signing events at two bookstores and then found an hour to walk in Central Park before the bookseller dinner. The sheep meadow at twilight, silvery light, wet leaves on the grass. The sky was crowded with low-altitude airships, and in the distance, the falling star lights of commuter aircraft streaked upward toward the colonies. Olive paused for a moment to orient herself, then walked toward the ancient double silhouette of the Dakota, Hundred-story towers rose up behind it. The Dakota was where Olive's new publicist was waiting, Aretta, in charge of all events in the Atlantic Republic. Aretta was a little younger than Olive and deferential in a way that made Olive nervous. When Olive walked into the lobby, Aretta stood quickly and the hologram with whom she'd been speaking blinked out. Did you have a nice walk in the park, she asked, already smiling in anticipation of a positive reply. It was lovely, thank you, Olive said. She didn't add, it made me wish I could live on Earth, because the last time she'd confided in a handler, it was repeated at dinner. Do you know what Olive told me on the ride over? A librarian in Montreal had reported breathlessly to a restaurant table full of waiting librarians. She told me she was a little nervous before her talk. So now, as a matter of policy, Olive didn't reveal anything even remotely personal to anyone, ever. Well, said Aretta, We should probably be getting to the venue. It's about six or seven blocks. We may be just... I'd love to walk, Olive said, if you don't mind. They walked out together into the Silver City. Did Olive actually wish she could live on Earth? She vacillated on the question. She'd lived all her life in the 150 square kilometers of the second moon colony, the imaginatively named Colony 2. She found it beautiful. Colony 2 was a city of white stone, spired towers, tree-lined streets, and small parks, alternating neighborhoods of tall buildings and little houses with miniature lawns, a river running under pedestrian archways. But there's something to be said for unplanned cities. Colony 2 was soothing in its symmetry and its order. Sometimes order can be relentless. So one of... um... Olive's concerns, which you've already said uh, were your concerns on this lecture tour, is this subject of post-apocalyptic literature yeah. and what sort of drives people to to, to write it. Um, and I would be curious to see actually post the pandemic if that wanes or increases depending... Right. Or if it'll be replaced yeah. by time travel fiction now that we're all writing time travel. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But but one of the things that really struck me um, was a reflection she has um, about writing or talking about the end of the world and writing about the end of the world, having had a daughter. Yes. And and suddenly this idea of, um, well, as you write, of of trying not to imagine the world ending with her daughter in it. And that, I think, is a it struck me as a really sort of fascinating reflection on um, how the sort of 
the worlds that writers create and then inhabit mm-hmm. will have a different impact on their on them depending on the the stage they are in their personal lives. Definitely. I mean, you know, you have a young child, um, mm. so you know the terror of parenthood. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if anything happened to that child, that is the end of the world. Is kind of the yeah, way yeah, yeah. the way I think of it as as a mother. I don't know that I could have written Station Eleven after having a child, mm-hmm. um, and and I have to say that gives me an even greater level of admiration for the people who made the Station Eleven TV series. Where, uh-huh. you know, my my friend Patrick Somerville is the showrunner. Um, he's got kids, and so does everybody else who worked in that production, or most of them who I know. And so what that means is that they had to they had to imagine the world ending with their children in it. And mm. that's something that I personally find really difficult. So yeah. yeah, during during the days when I was traveling a lot in the service of Station Eleven, um I, I my daughter was born right after the promotional tour. I toured until mm. I was seven months pregnant. And then um <laughs> I know it was yeah, it was a thing. <laughs> uh the flight attendants looked so terrified by the end. Just that look of like, please, for the love of God, don't give birth on this flight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I toured till I was seven months pregnant and then took a few months off. And then I was doing a lot of um, like lectures and onstage conversations all mm. over the U.S. And I did find myself forced into this weird kind of split brain situation mm. where I began to find the lectures increasingly exhausting because mm-hmm. one part of me would be talking about the end of the world. Well, another whole section of my brain was just trying to like actively not think about the end of the world mm-hmm. because that's unspeakable with a child. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was this sort of split brain situation that yeah, I lived in yeah, for a yeah. while. It puts me in mind of when I interviewed the the French writer Leila Slimani a few years ago now talking about her book, uh, when Britain is known as Lullaby in France, uh, yeah, in I know the, the States, I think yeah. it was the perfect nanny, yeah. I think. Yeah. And in which, uh, you know, a nanny kills the children that she's got in her care. And Leila said, the thing that inspired her to write it was when her son was born and just facing the terror of the idea that anything possibly uh, could happen to it. Yeah. I have such respect for her. And also I cannot read that book. Um, There was a a real case in New York City a number of years ago where a nanny murdered two children in her care. And, Mm. you know, um, yeah, it's just sometimes it's hard to make that leap into reading about the absolute worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if the character of uh, Olive Llewellyn is based, you know, in some ways, in many ways on on you and your Mm -hmm. experiences, there is other strands of this story where you come back to characters from from previous books. I mean, specifically um, The Glass Hotel. I mean, was this... um, did you, did what was it about the world of the Glass Hotel, which is in many ways was our world of the sort of the you know the two thousand eight financial crisis, that sort of epoch, that that meant that it was kind of the right setting for for this time travel novel that you were working on. Um, it mostly came down to timing and also an affection mm-hmm. for the characters. So uh-huh. when I when the pandemic hit and I started working on Sea of Tranquility. And I realized it was going to be a time travel novel. You know, I'm thinking through what the time periods are going to be. Mm-hmm. I liked the idea of opening with that period around 1912, mm-hmm. kind of to write a character based on an ancestor of mine, a great grandfather mm-hmm. who left London around that period. And then I am, for reasons we've talked about, fascinated by February 2020. So I knew I wanted uh. February 2020 in there. Then we move forward into the far future. But when I was thinking through the 2020 sections, I realized 
I have this whole cast of characters from a book that I literally just wrote. You know, so The Glass Hotel <laughs> came out March 2020. So um, I was writing Sea of Tranquility like right around the time that it came to press. And I realized I had all these characters who are very plausibly in New York City in the spring of 2020. Mm-hmm. And so it was partly a convenience factor, if we're being honest. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's easier to use characters who already exist than to create uh-huh. new ones from scratch. It was also a desire to spend more time with them and to get mm. to know them in different ways. Yeah. As yeah, a yeah. writer, one of my values is velocity. I want my book mm-hmm. to move really quickly and have as little in it that's extraneous as possible. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that I can't spend a ton of time with secondary characters like right. Morella and the Glass Hotel. But sometimes I'm really interested in them. So that can be nice, you know, to bring them into a new project and just see another facet of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so someone like Mirella would have had a sort of a whole rich secondary life right. while you were writing The Glass Hotel, exactly. which you sort of, because of your philosophy, yeah. you couldn't bring in into the book. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, you know, you can do that. You can write mm. a 600 page book, but that's just yeah. not really my interest. I um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I like shorter books that move fast. Mm-hmm. On the subject of, of, of your interest, one of the things, um, I think this com- comes across in Station Eleven, and but very much so in um, uh, Sea of Tranquility, is this I get the sense as a reader that to sort of you're interested in the let's say the implications of scientific advances and mm-hmm. science and things like that, but not particularly interested in let's say the details of that technology. It's more That's sort of fair. like your interest is the kind of the human side of it. Yeah, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I have this. I'd say I guess this is my second foray into speculative fiction, with Station mm-hmm. Eleven being the first. Uh, but this is the first book I've written that uses um, science fictional technology. Uh, And I think that if you're writing sci-fi, there's a pretty clear choice that you need to make early on, which is how far you want to go into, you know, the technical specifications. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way to do it. Um, I very much admire the work of Shishin Liu, uh, The Mm Three-Body Problem, The Dark Forest. Uh, His short stories are incredible. (laughs) <laughs> he goes deep on the technology in a way that is fascinating to me. You know, I'm like riveted yeah. by descriptions, you know, silicone mining or like whatever the uh-huh. thing is. Um, I've always kind of taken the opposite approach. Mm-hmm. And what I was thinking about with Sea of Tranquility is, you know, to back up a little bit, I started by kind of trying to imagine what the technology might look like. Like, mm-hmm. Is there a world where the quantum blockchain in which particles are linked through time instead of space? Mm-hmm. Like, is there a world where that becomes a time machine at some at mm-hmm. scale, you know, not just particles, but entire people and yeah. cats, for example? Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I started looking into that. But then what I realized is, look, it's just transport. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm not going into detail into how a car works in the year 2020, mm-hmm. then why am I hung up on the intricacies of, you know, the technical specifications of a time machine? Uh-huh. Uh, because to your point, I am more interested in the people. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, that was, that was the direction I went in, you know, just kind of yeah. gloss over the technology because from my perspective, it truly doesn't matter for this particular yeah. story. And just, you know, yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. Is, what does it do to the people? How do they react to these situations? Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about time travel, because I mean, I, I should confess, I grew up kind of obsessed with time travel, particularly in, in the movies, but also in mm-hmm. stories. So, you know, I was I was the ripe age for Back to the Future when it came out and, you know, movies like Twelve Monkeys, um, 
what's that the the is it the sound of thunder the ray bradbury oh i don't know that one story um i might i might have got the title wrong um but one thing that when you when you're interested in time travel stuff you immediately come across people who <laughs> if you look at anything online who will point out how, how for example back to the future gets everything wrong for 10,000 different reasons. Yeah, aren't those people fun? They're such a pleasure to analyze movies. <laughs> but what, did you feel any sort of uh, pressure when dealing with with time travel? Not exactly to get it right, because it's something which is essentially a, a fictional technology, but to have a kind of, um, to have it sort of hang together in in more than sort of an, a narrative sense. I guess. Right. Uh, to be honest, I couldn't do it without bringing in the simulation hypothesis, which, mm-hmm. you know, just this whole other level of weirdness, um, which for any listeners who are unfamiliar is what it sounds like. It's the idea mm-hmm. that we're all possibly living through the simulation. What I love about it is you can find very smart people who will convincingly argue either side. I myself take mm-hmm. no firm stance and don't uh-huh. really care. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was a way of dealing with all the sort of paradox and infinite time loop problems mm-hmm. where, you know, because that is the problem with time travel fiction. If I step out of this office and into a time machine that takes me back to 1910, was mm-hmm. I not always going to step out of the office into the time machine to... 1910 to 20, you know, you know mm. it goes around in a circle. And yeah, yeah, yeah. once you create that kind of loop, um, that's kind of disastrous in a novel in terms of mm. cause and effect and, and consequence. Yeah, consequence, really. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe the way to handle this would be to impose just this whole other level of weirdness. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a way to solve that problem for myself. Um, uh-huh. I've been learning how to write for TV and a wonderful phrase that I learned recently was hang a lantern on it, which means okay. point out the plot problem as a way of like deflecting the audience. So oh, what, what, what I did, so the way, you know, the, the point on which I hung a lantern, uh, was exactly that. So I have a character in the year 2400 saying, mm-hmm. we don't really understand why time travel works as well as it does or at all. Mm-hmm. It's weird that the timeline seems to repair itself every time we send yeah. a traveler back. We think the fact that it works at all might be evidence that we're living in a simulation. So that was uh-huh. that was the approach I took. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you say, that that idea of the simulation adds a whole other, not only a sense of weirdness, but a whole other kind of potential for uh, different sort of time periods to to interact with each other. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, one thing, just coming back to um, the fact that you said, like, lots of writers seem to be working on time travel. Um, uh, novels at the moment. I wonder if that could be in part because of how odd the experience of the pandemic was from a point of sort of time perception. And even yeah. now, when I, I look back to sort of think of those two months of initial lockdown, which seem both in some sort of distant, unrelated past, they seem to last an eternity, but also yeah. seem mm-hmm. to fly by. Like that, I think in some way, the the way that our experiences changed, there was this rupture in our everyday experience that it almost kind of deconfigured the the experience of time that we have. Absolutely. it's And I don't know how to express it except this feeling of wrongness where mm-hmm. I can't say that those months went quickly exactly. Right. You know, the days were infinitely long. Mm-hmm. But there was a kind of featurelessness or like sameness to each day mm-hmm. in lockdown or even, you know, beyond the government mandated lockdown, just the very mm-hmm. long period when we might as well have been in lockdown because we were being careful. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know what happened to time, but mm-hmm. something did <laughs> because this comes up in every conversation I have about the pandemic where, 
you know, I was at an, an outdoor dinner party the other night mm-hmm. in New York and the topic came up and I remembered it had just come up over coffee with a friend a few days before. Mm-hmm. And it does feel like every gathering people start talking about time. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something about every day being the same as the day before, which mm-hmm. makes our perception of time a little wonky, you know, it, where it That's seems to move unnaturally fast. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I can only perceive that through the opposite condition, which Mm -hmm. something I've noticed over the years is that during periods of my life, like now, where I'm traveling a lot, which means the days keep changing and it's a lot of new experiences, Mm -hmm. it makes time incredibly slow in a way that I love because it feels like there's more life in any given day Mm -hmm. where, you know, I am... I first noticed it a number of years ago. It was a November and Mm -hmm. I had all these lectures set up on consecutive weeks. So Mm -hmm. for three Wednesdays in a row, I went to the airport and left town for 36 hours and then came back. Uh And I remember having this feeling at the end of the month of how is it still November? You know, it's been November Mm -hmm. for like a year. So yeah, yeah. yeah, (laughs) you know, when I, when I have that kind of opposite experience, it throws our pandemic time situation a little bit more into relief. Mm -hmm. I think- Yeah, the days felt too long, but I think the sameness of the days made time move too fast. So we feel weirdly cheated in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also probably just um, the sort of the progression of life, sort of getting older, maybe having kids as well, Mm -hmm. really changes your your perception of things that happened before you were born um, as well. I mean, the one thing that came to me recently was watching the the Beatles documentary Get Back, um, the extraordinary eight hour <laughs> uh, thing about the recording of, of Let It Be. And suddenly for me, the Beatles were always a kind of sort of his, uh, something in the kind of middle right. history. history yeah. you know? And yet suddenly seeing pictures of like late 60s London and realizing, oh, that was closer to the London I knew as a kid right. than the London of right. today is. And I wonder, so you said that the sort of the, um, the, the part of the story set in the early 20th century was inspired by was it your great grandfather? Yes, yeah. And um, and I yeah. wonder, do you think the urge to write about that and to engage with that story comes in a sense from this sort of compression of time that occurs as we as we get older? It's it's very possible. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, because you know, it's interesting with historical fiction, or even just, I'd say, even just reading it, not writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's done well, like when it's somebody like Emma Donahue, who's just like, mm-hmm. spectacular at it, it does collapse time in a really interesting mm. way where, you know, when you're a kid, the experience of, say, your great-grandfather who left London at 18 in 1906, mm. um, you know, that that might as well be William the Conqueror. You know, it's like, it seems right. like yeah, infinitely yeah. distant in the past. Mm. Um, but yeah, when you read, for me, it's particularly fiction, but history books can function this way too. Um, mm. Just when you see the humanness of people, that can that can collapse yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's partly why I'm so drawn to um, to portraits, like photographs and paintings yeah. and museums. Is mm. there's something about seeing the faces of people in the distant past and realizing yeah. they look like the people I see on the subway in just different clothes? Uh, <laughs> but, yes, yeah, yeah it, it does collapse time. And how did you how did you think yourself into that world? Because obviously, I guess when you're projecting into the future there's an element of um, speculation. And in a sense, yeah. you, you don't really have material to work with. But there you had a yeah, history, a sort of a family story. Did Was it in that, in that way, did it have to be 
more researched and did you feel sort of more obliged to kind of tack closer to historical definitely yeah it's much harder to write historical Mm -hmm. fiction than any other kind of fiction I've ever written (laughs) you know when it's (laughs) when it's it's in the future you can just make it up um Uh you can't do that with 1912 so yeah it's a fairly slim section of the book but took much more research and Mm. thought than any of the rest of the book did I did not hew completely to any kind of family story. You know, my, um, my great grandfather, he had a pretty, the most extravagantly British name in the history of British names, uh, <laughs> Newell St. Andrew St. John, although I suppose it would well, have been Newell St. Andrew St. John back then. Um, yeah, a recipient of- the sound made, doesn't it? It sounds made up. Yeah. I don't know who puts two saints in the same name, but you know, maybe that's why he left London. Um, but yeah, left London at 18 uh, under the cloud of some unspecified scandal. Everybody was mm-hmm. terribly discreet. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> and <laughs> sent off to make a go of it in the new world. Um, mm. In many ways, failed fairly spectacularly. You know, he ran a couple of farms into the ground and did prison time. Um, mm-hmm. But he was part of this very strange little niche of the Canadian immigration experience, which was he was a remittance man, which... Mm-hmm. You know, at that time in England, the law was that the entire estate had to go to the oldest son. So what do you do with your extra sons? Well, you send them off to Canada, Australia, et cetera. So yeah, on the one hand, an incredibly privileged existence. You know, there was money flowing from home and he was very educated. On the other hand, these men were entirely ill-suited to literally anything. You know, just the kind of education where you'd speak Latin and Greek, but have no idea how to run a business in any way. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting to me. Uh, one thing that it's kind of, in a sense, a bit of a subtext to the book, um, but it does kind of come up at, at different moments in, in that in that early section and the early 20th century and as we go on into the future, is, a, I guess, a kind of ecological uh, perspective. And that sort of, you know, he, you find, um, you know, in the early 20th century, sort of questions of sort of uh, whether that we have a right to, to colonize the sort of the native yes, yeah. the lands of the Canadian, uh, you know, the the, the native uh, Canadians, and then if in the future sections, you know, we have not only gone on to colonize mm-hmm. the moon, but some of those colonies have almost fallen into a state of, um, yeah. of disrepair. Yeah, um, I'm just curious about the sort of the. Uh, the way you kind of engage with sort of ecological questions, mm-hmm. in a sense, with without going sort of one way or the other, without making it a kind of complete ecological catastrophe, mm-hmm. but also trying to show, I guess, this sort of this very real sense of human decay that yeah. we we seem unfortunately to bring to everywhere. literally everything that we do. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on there. Um, yeah, you know. You can't really write a narrative set in the future at this point without engaging in climate change in some way. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it felt disingenuous to not engage with that at all. And it's it's definitely not the point of the book. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. even mentioned explicitly. But but yeah, the thing where Olive is touring Earth and some of the cities are under domes now because mm-hmm. the weather is unlivable. So that's that's one yeah. aspect of it. But to return to colonization for a second... What I found myself thinking about with this book is that our language is inadequate, where mm. it just doesn't seem right to me that we use the same word to refer to, on the one hand, a genocidal project in the so-called mm. New World, uh, you know, Canada and Australia and elsewhere, 
And on the other hand, building a city on the moon, which feels harmless mm. to me. <laughs> so, yeah. but yeah, when I was thinking about colonization, the first kind, the bad kind that my ancestors engaged in, mm. I found myself coming back to the simulation hypothesis in a weird way mm. where it seems to me that a big part of the underlying tragedy of colonization or colonialism mm. um, has to do with a false narrative. And mm. in Canada, that was the narrative of the empty land. The idea right. that here is an empty landscape that's there for the taking. Mm. Of course, it wasn't empty, and that's why it was a bloodbath. You know, it was mm. catastrophic. But if you're living under the service of that false story, um, is that in a weird way like living in a simulation? You know, you're living mm -hmm. in a world that fundamentally isn't real. And yes, yeah. So those were the ideas I found myself playing with there. Mm. I think the the thing I'd like to to, to finish on is this idea. Um, of movement, I suppose. It, the one thing that, uh, again, it's not, it's, it's not said particularly explicitly in the book, but you suddenly realize that so many of the characters are in constant motion mm -hmm. all of the time. So whether that's, you know, moving from the UK to Canada, mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, uh, uh, Olive on a constant book tour, whether that's uh, Gaspari, who we haven't had much chance to speak about, but who, you know, traveling through time and between and between different places and there's there's one moment where a character does say uh, i've been thinking a great deal about time and motion lately about being a still point in the ceaseless rush right. um and that in a way brings me sort of full circle back to the um the experience of being locked down mm -hmm. and for good or ill for, for for many of us depending on our experience of it that the deeply sort of unusual experience of being still. You're right. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. I had traveled constantly up until the pandemic. And then, yeah, that kind of forced landing was so intense. I think for all of us. Um, mm. I didn't get on an airplane for two years, which I realize is yeah. kind of the normal state of human life, but that wasn't normal for me. <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Maybe it's partly in reaction to the pandemic that mm. that I personally live in such a state of motion now where um, I'm always back and forth between mm. New York City and Los Angeles. And th there was also, of course, the promotional tour for Sea of Tranquility, which kept me moving mm. too. But um, yeah, I'm in a state of ceaseless motion these days. Mm. I don't want it to last forever, but I also kind of uh, love it after being forced yeah. to be the still point, you know, for those mm. two years of, of pandemic life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, just before we finish, you have mentioned um, the TV project. Uh, and I know that our listeners will be very curious to know, firstly, about that, anything sure. you could tell us, and also um, what you've got in, in the pipeline next. Will we be seeing any of these characters again in future novels? Have you got something under underway, completely un unconnected? Um, I, have a, I am working on a new novel. Mm -hmm. It uses characters from my second novel. I'm going way back okay. to The Singer's Gun, yeah. which came out in yeah. 2010 and very few people read. Um, there's a character <laughs> from that book who's going to be in my seventh novel. Um, okay. Yeah, the TV project. It's, it is uh, exhausting and also creatively <laughs> exhilarating. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think partly my interest in TV comes back to the pandemic in a way where mm -hmm. I think we've all been changed by the two years we've just lived through. Sure. Something that's different for me is I don't want to just tell stories by myself alone in a room anymore. I mm. want to tell stories with other people. So 
I love the collaboration of a TV, you know, of a writer's room and television. It's, it's like nothing else I've ever experienced. And it's incredibly hard. It's draining mm-hmm. some days. I'm kind of a zombie at the end of the day. But it's <laughs> so much fun. I just, you know, just being in a room with people who are as obsessed with narrative as I am and building a story uh-huh. together. So the story we're working on, I'm working with Patrick Somerville, the showrunner on Station Eleven, and his Station Eleven colleagues. It's a, it's the same team. And for anybody who's had the opportunity to see the series, for me, one of the absolute standout performances was Danielle Deadweiler as Miranda. So we're imagining The Glass Hotel, my subsequent novel, with uh, Danielle Deadweiler as the lead. Uh, So Mm. Miranda takes on this investigative role. Um, And yeah, I I hope it goes ahead. The, uh, The way it's set up, we have a couple more weeks to produce to finish the first two scripts mm-hmm. um, on the basis of which HBO Max will decide whether or not to move forward. So mm-hmm. yeah, fingers crossed. It's a, it's well, a lot of pressure. Yeah. But it's fun. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be rooting for it. Having, uh, having heard that. Of course, Sea of Tranquility is available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, obviously from our website as well. And from your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may live. Uh, Emily, it's been such a pleasure today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>